when one reads the scriptures, and particularly the Old Testament, there are many demands in the word of God. And when we ask the question, what is God seeking of us? We may receive varying answers. But I submit to you this evening that from the dawn of creation and God's dealings with Adam and Eve in the garden, God communing with Adam and Eve, his call of Abraham, his choice of Israel and his making of a nation, that there has been and, has, and will always be one thing above everything else that God is seeking from men. It is the same thing that he seeks to us from us today in the 21st century. And that one thing that God seeks above all else is our love. I think that this is at the heart of Mark chapter 12 and the verses that were read for us beginning in verse 28. And the chapter is essentially recording the Lord Jesus in the last week, the Passion Week, the week in which he's crucified in Jerusalem. This is the third time he comes into Jerusalem. He's in the temple. And the religious leaders, that is the Sanhedrin, comprising of the chief priests, the scribes and the elders approach Jesus with questions, hostile questions, intending to trip Jesus up, to show him to be a fraud. And so there are a series of questions that are brought to Jesus. And you will find, for instance, that the Pharisees and the Herodians approach Jesus we read of this in verse 13 and following. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. They sent to him. This is an official delegation. And they come from the Sanhedrin. The Herodians were, though they were a religious party, consisted of people of the upper class who were in a sense, compromisers with Rome. The Pharisees were a strict separatist party that wanted to follow the law strictly. And these two are strange bedfellows. They don't get along. But they are sent by the Sanhedrin with Jesus, we are told, to catch him in his words. This is the last throw of the dice. If they can expose him, they can then get rid of him. And they've come with a question. They're asking him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You must understand that it is a difficult question. I mean, you look at it on the surface, it seems that there is no issue. But you also need to recognize that, it is, that the Romans are an occupying force. So anyone who goes along and says, let's pay taxes to the Romans, is going to be seen as a traitor to one's nation. But if one were to say, let's not pay any taxes to the Romans, that is also seen as traitorous to the Roman government and, and therefore exposes you to criminal proceedings by the Romans. So wherever you turn, however you move, you are going to land yourself into difficulties. Jesus answers it with a master stroke. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Well, he has vanquished this delegation from the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Herodians. The Sadducees now come with a second question. And they've come as a 
second delegation. And they have, a, in their mind, a difficult question. A question about resurrection. So a man with seven brothers marries a woman. And he dies without an offspring. And the law of literate marriage means that one's brother must raise up a seed. And so all seven brothers married this woman and all of them died without raising a seed. And the question then that they pose to Jesus is whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus responds to them by telling them that they do not understand the word of God. Our Lord makes it clear to them that in the resurrection there will be no marriage. There will be no giving into marriage. But we will be like angels in heaven in verse 25. And so that our Lord makes it clear that God is the God of the living. They are greatly mistaken. Now, there was a scribe, a religious leader. He's a religious expert. But notice the difference in this man. He's been listening to what has been going on. The questions that have been posed to Jesus. And we are, rem we are reminded that he comes to us singularly. He doesn't come with a party. He has not been sent by anybody. But he takes it upon himself to go to Jesus with a question. And notice the very positive view that this scribe has of Jesus. Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceived that he has answered them well. In other words, he saw that the Lord Jesus Christ was correct. He had a positive response to Jesus and his encounter with these two different groups. And so he comes to the Lord and he asks, which is the first commandment of all? And the Lord responds, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You notice the scribe how he responds to Jesus. Well said, bravo, this is true, this is great. Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And this is the only scribe in the entire New Testament who Jesus praises. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared question him. But it is our Lord's response that I want us to consider. In asking what is the great, what is the greatest of all the commandments, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The question is an important question because it was one of the questions that was being asked in Judaism. You see, the rabbis had somehow come up with 613 laws. They believed that when you read the five books of Moses called the Pentateuch, you could find 613 different laws. 365 of these, they said, were prohibitions, thou shalt not. Things what you shouldn't do. And 248 were positives. This is what you should do. Now, there's a lot of commandments. For, first of all, to remember, and then to do. 613. And there was always a question among the rabbis. Which is the greatest of these? What is a single principle, summarizing statement? That you can make of the law. In fact, there was this famous rabbi, Hillel, who operated some 20 years before Jesus. And when he was asked 
to summarize the law, to, to tell them what is the essence of the law. His response has, was, was a negative version of what we call the golden rule. Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you, he said. This is the whole Torah, and the rest is commentary. Now, Jesus recasts this. In fact, he states that it is not simply that one should not do evil to one's neighbor. But the greatest of the commandment, that which summarizes all that God responds, is that one must love the Lord. I want us to consider, first, the priority of love to God. The first of all the commandments in verse 29 is here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. It's an imperative. It is a call to love. And here Jesus quotes from the Shema. That is, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. The Shema is in verse 5, but he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Now notice that the Shema, and the word Shema simply means here, here, O Israel. And so it's called the Shema. It was a statement of monotheistic value, affirming the oneness of God. This was a creedal statement of the Jews. They recited this. Every morning and every evening, hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That is what they repeated twice a day, morning and evening. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord. This is the great commandment. And the call to love, agape is a call to devote oneself, to commit oneself to God. But when he tells them that they don't love the Lord, he focuses on how they don't love the Lord. How they don't devote themselves and commit themselves to the Lord. They are to love the Lord, he says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. We need to, first of all, preface this by saying these are overlapping terms. And so we should not seek to draw a rigid distinction between these nouns. Nouns like heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we mustn't walk away in thinking that man is somehow uh, made up of four distinct parts. No. The passage is indeed referring man to an interior love that they should have for God. If we consider these then in broad terms, the Lord commands that God is to be loved first and foremost with our affections. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now we know that in the Old Testament lev, the heart, depicted the vital center of man and his relationship with God. It is for that reason Solomon could say, guard your heart, guard your lev with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. The heart contained in the Old Testament the aims, the principles, the thoughts, and the feelings of men. In other words, the heart by itself summarizes all aspects of our personalities, our thinking, our willing, our feeling. It is therefore with the heart that one thinks, reflects, and ponders, and plans. In fact, these term, the term heart, and the term soul, are overlapping, as I indicated earlier. And so often the soul in the Old Testament could refer to the totality of our persons. God blew in his nostril the breath of life and man became a living soul, a living being. You see, soul could summarize all of our persons just like heart could. Generally, the soul would refer to the life principle, that animating life in us, that interior life. 
that we possess. It also refers to one's desires and one's feelings. And so if we look then at heart and soul as referring to one's inner being, and particularly it seems in this context, it refers to one's affection. That genuine love for God requires a love of affection that is warm. A love of union. See, where there is genuine love for God, there is first of all a, a desire to be united with God. A love that flows from an estimation of God as the chief good, as, a, as the highest good. A love that recognizes God as altogether lovely and desires him. It's a love of enjoyment. A love that takes pleasure and satisfaction in God. You see, when, 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 when someone says, I love you, especially two young people who are going out and intend to get married and they say to each other, they love each other. You know, those are the days when stars are flashing and so on. Seems as though when you get older, stars disappear. But in those years, <laughs> in, those, in those years when the, the, the love is fresh and it's young, they say we love one another. What does that mean? Well, it means many things. But foremost in that love, there's an enjoyment. There's an enjoyment. And by the way, please don't get me wrong. When you get older, the love, dis love, the love does not disappear. It, it matures. It gets wiser. Um, it's stronger. But there is a desire for the company of one another. You long to be with them. You know, you don't see your partner or the person you love for a week and you think this is ages. You can't understand how you existed for a week. And if they don't text you or Snapchat or do something like that for two hours, you think that the world is caving in. You, you, you know that's true. You desire the person. You desire their presence. You'll want to hear their voices. You want to be in their company. There is a sense of joy and satisfaction that you get when you are with them. And when you are apart from them, there is a sense of isolation and loneliness. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It's calling for a love that desires God. That enjoys his presence. And the psalmist could say, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. You see, that is a description of love. And true, all, true love always involves a longing after God, a panting after God. And so you hear the psalmist, as the heart pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants after thee, O oh my God. You long for him. And when you are close to him, there's a delight in his presence. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all of your desiring. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul. But chief in the love of God is not only an emotional longing, so that the love is not merely emotional. That we love the Lord Secondly, to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our minds means that we must love God not only with our affections, but we must love the Lord with our cognition or simply with our intellect. And I'm going to argue that this is at the heart of loving God with our heart. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The original passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 is including only three parts or three things that are required in love for God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But Jesus includes this element of loving the Lord with all your 
mind to clarify that loving the Lord with one's heart and with one's soul involves one's intellect. And interestingly, when the scribe repeats our Lord's statement, do you see what he does in verse 35? Telling our Lord he has spoken well and true. He says, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength. You see, what is missing there is mind. But it's not really missing because he reinterprets mind as understanding. And so loving God, devoting ourselves to God, requires not only our affection, it involves our intellect, our understanding. And C.B. Cranfield, who wrote a brilliant commentary on the book of Romans, perhaps still the standard work on Romans, says that when we love God with all our hearts and with all our soul and particularly with our minds, that involves trying to know God as he truly is, as he really is. To, to love God with the mind means that we must seek to know God and to understand his will for us. It means that, therefore, we must think upon God. Thomas Watson says that there are three things that are involved in loving God with our mind or with understanding. First, he says that we must seek, if we love God with our minds, to know the nearness of his presence. Secondly, to love God with the mind requires that we would seek to know the fullness of his grace. His grace to cleanse us. His grace to help us. And thirdly, he says that to love God with the mind not only involves knowing the nearness of his presence, the fullness of his grace, but we must know the freeness of his love. Whatever you may include in this, it entails that if we love God with our minds, that we think appreciatively upon him, upon his nearness, upon his graceness, upon the fullness of his love and grace and the freeness of his mercies to us. It means that we must, if we are seeking to love God with all our minds, we must soak our minds in the revelation of God's word. We must direct all of our intellectual pursuits to glorify God with the mind. We must study the scriptures. We must meditate upon the word. We must hear the preaching of the word. We must love God with our minds. We live in a culture that does not like reading. You, 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 you can't, it seems today, give people whole books to read. If you tell a fellow to go and read a book, you, it's like you're, you're torturing him. You're sentencing him to the gallows. But oh, he can spend hours typing away, tapping on the keyboard, moving things around with the mouse on the computer. He can do all of that. You want him to read one paragraph, he's in misery. But we who are Christians must love the Lord with our minds. And if we are to love him with our minds, there must be something in them. I understand these things are self-evident. But we must fill our minds with the truth of God's word. We must think upon his presence. Upon the loveliness of his nature. Upon his goodness and grace. This call to follow the Lord is never mindless. It is not only the intellect, but it is chief. Because you see, it is the mind that guides us. Whoever controls the mind, whoever controls the heart, controls all of life. If God is central in our minds and thinking, he will control all of our lives. We must love the Lord with our 
heart, with our soul, that is, not only with our affection, but with our intellect. But thirdly, in the call to love the Lord, the Lord Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And he says, with all your strength, with all your strength. This means that we must love the Lord with our wills or with our volition. We must love the Lord with our, with our energy. And thus it means that loving God must not be merely seen as emotive and cognitive. But it must also be seen as volition. Loving the Lord that is endeavoring to please the Lord. Endeavoring to do the will of God with all our strength, with all our power. Those who love the Lord seek to do the will of God. They, they, they see God as the supreme good and they yield their lives to him. They are motivated by pleasing him. You see, where there is true love, there will be a desire to please. One of the first things you're going to note when you are dating somebody or when you love somebody is that you're going to know very soon the things they like. But by trial and error, you're going to also get to know the things they don't like, things that annoy them. And all those old habits you had and thought were great are suddenly frowned upon. And if you love the person, you're going to get rid of those behaviors. You're going to stop doing the things that you know you shouldn't do. You thought it was fantastic to leave your socks inside the bed and don't take them up your sink. And you thought that the smell that came from them was perfume, but you get married and your wife tells you, I don't like your socks beside the bed. It doesn't smell nice. You're going to get rid of it. You're going to spray your shoes or do something or hide them in the closet or somewhere else where they can't be smelled. But there's always a desire to please. You see, with the genuine love, there's a desire to please. Jesus says you should love the Lord your God with all your strength. With all your will. But when you put these together, it's one thing to separate them and to look at them individually. Saying we're called upon to love the Lord with our emotions and to love him with our intellect. And to love him with our wills. But the, there is this fourfold emphasis in the text on all. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In fact, literally, the text says you shall love the Lord your God from all your heart, from all your soul, from all your mind, from all your strength. And what this is essentially doing is calling us to love the Lord with our entire being. With everything that we have and with everything that we are. It is essentially a call to love the Lord with all, with our whole persons. It's a call to first commandment obedience. You shall have no other gods beside me. God must dominate the heart. We shall love him with our whole persons, our affection, our mind, and our will. God must be the chief in our desires, in our thinking, and in our willing. That's what it means. We don't have to worry about the classifications and the differences between heart and soul and mind and strength. What God is saying is love me with all that you've got. So we notice the priority of love for God. We think of the Old Testament. We think of the law. We think of the... Ten Commandments, followed by the whole series of cultic and religious laws and laws governing relationships. When we think of the burdens of the law, but let's not be, let's not be mistaken. The law itself was calling God's people to love him. And what the Ten Commandments and the other laws were doing, what they were fleshing out, 
how love was to be expressed. Now, the fact that they were not able to do so doesn't mean that they were not being called to love God. But what is the rationale for love if we've seen the priority of love? I want to suggest that we get an inkling of the, of the rationale for love. Notice what Jesus says in verse 29. The first of all the commandments is here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And I'm going to suggest to you in, that, in this preface mentioned only by Mark, Jesus is giving something of the rationale for love for God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And what he stresses is the uniqueness of God. God is one. He is the only Lord and master of the universe. He is their creator. But more than that, he is Lord. He, this is the covenant name, Yahweh. This is the name that God gave to Israel when he met them. And when he met Moses at the burning bush. It is the Lord, the one who enters into covenant, one who takes them to be his people. He is a supreme being, the ruler of heavens and earth, but he's the Lord of his people. The one who has loved them. The one who delivers them from captivity. The one who enters into a covenant relationship with God. And precisely because God is the unique creator. And the unique Lord of covenant. They are going to enter into a love that is strong and passionate and intelligible. They must love him with a wholehearted fervency. Because... He alone is God. But I want to suggest when you consider the rationale, it is because, not only because there is none greater to be loved than God. They should love the Lord because their love arises out of his love for them. You see, when God told Israel to, to love him, he was only commanding them to respond to his love. We can't read Deuteronomy 10 and not see that the reason why God chose Israel, did not choose the other nations, wasn't because they were more numerous, wasn't because they were more obedient, but because the Lord said, I loved you. You see, the call to love the Lord is a call that is rooted first and foremost, not only in the uniqueness of God himself as sovereign of the, creator, of the creation, but also the one who loves them. The Testament fleshes this out further for us by saying to us that our love is dependent upon God's love for us. Beloved, let us love one another, for God is love, or for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And again, in 1 John 4 verse 19, he says, We love him because he first loved us. The reason that Israel is called to love the Lord and the reason that these are called to love the Lord, it is because of God's prior antecedent love for us. And John in 1 John will go on to show that God, his love for us has been demonstrated in the cross. In 1 John 4, 10 to 12, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love our brothers. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. God's love for us is the motive for our love for him. I want to suggest that God's love requires a responsive love. But love, God's love is creative. It creates love in us. This is how we know what love is. 1 John 3.16, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
And when you are called upon to love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, you are to read this command in the context of God's great overwhelming love in Jesus Christ. That God has given Christ as a propitiation for our sins. That he sent his only begotten son who came into the world, who was ridiculed and despised and persecuted and finally hung on a cross. That he took the weight of our burden and our sins and he did it because of love. And the love that God has revealed in giving us heaven's prize gift should all demand our life, our soul, our all. It is the cross which is the proof, it is proof positive of God's love. How do we, how do we know that God loves us? Yes, because we see his goodness in providence. He sends the rain and the sun. It falls and it shines on the just and on the unjust. But even greater than God's providential care is God's care revealed in a crucified Savior. The cross is the fullest and plainest demonstration of love. And because of this, we are to love him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And in response to God's creative Love, we are to love him in return. We are to be loving people because we have been loved. I'm saying to you that we've seen the priority of love to love God, but we've seen the rationale. It's based on the uniqueness of God's being. There is no higher and greater than God himself to be loved. God has demonstrated his love for us, and his love requires a response. Particularly because he's given himself in Jesus Christ. But notice that this love that we are called to demonstrate towards God. is not something that we just conjure up in our hearts. We just don't will ourselves to love. I want to suggest to you that if you are a believer you have it in you to love. How? Because love is a fruit of the spirit. The spirit of God creates love in us. And so we are reminded in Romans in chapter 5, the writer says, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given. You see, God's Spirit has poured out in our hearts a sense of God's love for us, and we are to pour out our love to God. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's producing us, giving us of God. But I want to point you, not merely to the priority of love and the rationale for love, based on the uniqueness of God, his own love for us demonstrated in the cross, and the indwelling of the Spirit who brings to us the love of God for us. I want to say something on the practice of love. Jesus tells the scribe, this expert in the law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. The man asked Jesus, notice the man asked Jesus for one commandment to summarize all the commandments, but Jesus gives him two. In verse 31, and the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus could have stopped at verse 30, but he presses on to verse 31 to make us understand that love for God must not be seen as merely sentimental. That the proof of our love is manifested largely, perhaps clearly not, only, but largely in love for one another. What Jesus is saying is that love for God will demonstrate itself in how we love one another. Jesus is now quoting in verse 31 from Levit Leviticus 18, 19 verse 18, 
You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, love for God will demonstrate itself in love for those who are made in the image of God. And that is why John, for instance, in 1 John 4.20, could say, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. What Jesus does is that he says loving God is inseparable from loving one another. He's not saying that they are one and the same thing. But he's saying you cannot have one without the other. This is a love that Paul envisions as supremely practical, love for one another. So in Romans 13, 8 and 9, he could say, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there Paul is making it clear that when we love one another, we will not do evil to one another. We will not murder, not physically only, but with our tongues and with our hearts. We will not harbor hatred and grudges in our hearts. We will not steal. We will not lie against one another. We will not covet them or take away their, their spouses. You see, we will not do evil. But loving one another is not only an avoidance of evil, it is positive, it is doing good. And so when you read the Apostle Paul, he will tell you love is forbearing, is patient with one another. Love is forgiving. Love is curbing and restraining our liberties for the benefit of others. And so Paul could say, for you brethren have been called to liberty only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Love means speaking the truth, but speaking it sensitively. Ephesians 4 verse 5. You see, these are expressions of love. It's doing good. It's sacrificing ourselves for others. But let me say that love not only manifests itself in Love for one another, but love for God reveals itself also in obedience to God. This is what Jesus says. If you love me, keep my commandment. And I mentioned this word this morning. This word is a military term. It means to guard like one, like a soldier guards a base. But it also denotes persistence in obedience to observe. And so those who love the Lord will persist in guarding, in keeping, in observing his law. To love the Lord is to keep his commandments, is to obey him. See, love always leads to action. My friends, the Apostle, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, now abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. What does the Lord require of us? What is he seeking from you and from me? He's seeking our love. There is a call that goes in the Old Testament. It still echoes today, my son, give me your heart. You see, what God is seeking from us is a relationship. Not merely based in rituals, but one that comes from the heart. 
And only when we consider the greatness of God, when we consider that there is no other being like him that is supreme, that the Lord our God is one. He has no competition. He has no equal. And certainly he has no superior. We're to love him with a superior love. We're to love him who has loved us and given us Jesus. We cannot have two competing loves in our lives. We must love the Lord with a superior love. And every other love that we have must be inferior to this love. This is what God calls for a relationship, a relationship of love. And Paul tells the Corinthians, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. What is God after? He's after your heart. It's not your money, but your heart. And if he has your heart, he will have your money and will have everything else. Do you love him? Do you have a desire for him? Do you long for his presence? You, you go a day and you haven't read your Bible or you haven't spent time to pray and you feel something is missing. You see, that, that feeling that you have there is a sign of your love. And maybe when you come before the Lord, you don't always know how to pray. You don't really know how to direct your prayers. Sometimes you come before the Lord and there is no real feeling there. But you see, the desire to be in his presence is a sign of love. My son, give me your heart. What he wants is our love. You must know that in loving him, you must love his people. You must love him with his people with a sincere love. A love that has no ulterior motive. A love that is generous and giving. A love that is given irrespective of worth. So we don't love people just because of the position that they have or the education they have or their standing in society. We love all men because we love God. It is God's Love that is in our hearts that inspires our love for one another. It's a practical kind of love. A love that will enable us to wash the feet of others. To serve others. To serve others with, un with, with humility. You see, love is a very atmosphere. In fact, love is the atmosphere in which every Christian virtue grows. You can never develop patience. You can never develop faith. You can never develop loyalty or kindness, unless there is love. It is the atmosphere in which every Christian virtue grows, and it's the atmosphere in which the church is built up and cemented. But let me close by saying, this love for the Lord is not a fruitless venture. It's a rich blessing. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 3, Eyes have not seen, nor ears heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. You need to know that heaven is only for lovers of God. I hear a lot of people say that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. They believe they're going to be with God. But they will not take a moment to praise him. They will not worship him. They will not seek to live for him. They don't love him. And if they were to go to heaven, they'll be very uncomfortable. Because what you see in heaven are lovers of God. What you see in heaven is a throne of God in the midst of heaven, surrounded by an outer ring of 24 elders and an inner ring of four living creatures. And what are they doing? They are falling down before the throne and they're saying, You are worthy. They're worshiping, they're praising him. And by the way, if you read Revelation 4 and 5, it doesn't seem as if though this is something planned. It's spontaneous. They're standing before the throne, they're gazing upon God, they're seeing his majesty, his power, his beauty. And as they look at him, they can't help themselves but fall down and praise. 
and they get up and they look again and they fall over again and the praise goes on and on for eternity. Heaven is for lovers of God. And eyes have not seen and ears have not heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We are reminded in the scriptures, blessed is a man who endures temptation for when he has approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to give those who love him. What I'm saying is that loving God brings great dividend. And we are not talking now about a, a quid pro quo relationship. God is saying, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. You love me, I love you back. Now, what is amazing about this? God promises to reward those who love him. But the love we have for him is given of him. It is his love given to us that we are using to love him. So God's reward for loving him is a reward of grace. Because the love we have for him comes from God. It is he alone who enables us to love him. My friends, we must cry with the hymn writer Elizabeth, Elizabeth Prentice. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou my prayer on bended knees. This my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. Apostle Paul, in closing 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 16, it says, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be condemned. Because the greatest evil is not to love this good and gracious God. May God help us as we go through this week that whatever we do, we do it as an offering for love, an offering that comes from our hearts, an offering of love. If we have to be de deal with pressures and difficulties at work, hold our temper, treat those who mistreat us with kindness, let's do that with love. If we must serve somebody on the street or help them or listen to them, let's do that with love. Because, you see, we have known the love of God. Here is the greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. May God grant us that deep, profound, and abiding love to enjoy him and to seek to please him for Jesus' sake.